Well, good morning to all. We can turn this up a little bit. Especially you fathers, good morning to you. It's, uh, it's great to be a father. It's great to be alive, isn't it, fathers? Especially a day like this. And especially uh, today, I want to talk about trusting fathers. Well, not exactly. I know you kids are going, oh boy, here we go. This is one of those days I didn't want to hear about trusting my father. Well, no, you'll be happy to know this is not a Father's Day sermon. In fact, it has nothing to do with fathers, as I just mentioned, except one thing. And this might be the best sermon I'll ever preach on fatherhood. And it's going to be in a very simple statement. Fathers, consider this. To the degree that you are trusting your father in heaven, will be the degree to which your children will have a disposition to trust him as well. That is a great sermon, I must say. Think about that. With that, let's talk about trusting God. And I guess indirectly it relates then. Do you trust God? Now I'm talking to all of you, not just fathers. Do you? I mean, that's a really awkward question when you stop to think about it. Do you trust God? I mean, really, do you? Do you trust him as your guide in life? Do you trust him to flourish in your life? Are you willing to forsake all other trusts in order to give God your ultimate and practical trust in things like the decisions you make? the way you invest your time and the way you invest your money and the way you invest your, your other assets? Do you trust him? You know, there are many signs, I think, that might indicate that you might answer something like this. Well, perhaps if you're a Christian, um, you're saying, well, I want to trust him. In fact, I would say almost every song we sang this morning is is a song, like so much of the Christian uh, repertoire of music, is a song about trusting God. It's really amazing how how crucial and how central this theme is. And so I suspect you might say, yeah, I want to trust God. Oh, and I do trust God when I'm singing that hymn. (laughs) It feels like that. But ask yourself some questions or consider these, these sort of observations, signs that, perhaps point to the fact that we might not be trusting God. When we fail to believe that God is active in our circumstances, are we trusting God? When we fail to believe that God is active in building his kingdom in, with, and through our lives, are we trusting God? When we struggle with anxiety and fear, are we trusting God? When we can't stop working, are we trusting God? When we expect too much of other people and get frustrated with them, are we trusting God? When we trust in human will and engineering before we turn to prayer and humble reliance upon God's revealed wisdom, are we trusting God? When we find it difficult to make decisions being paralyzed by fear versus inspired by divine promises and wisdom. Are we trusting God? 
when we rationalize compromising faithfulness to God for the sake of an otherwise good end. Now, that surprises you. I might say that one again. When we rationalize compromising faithfulness to God for the sake of an otherwise good ends, are we trusting God? Well, I hope now we begin to see that this is a awkward topic. Because I suspect that all, what were that, nine, eight instances, I begin to reflect on, God, that's true. I'm not really trusting God. And so this is a sermon that's been on my heart, and, and I hope and pray that God will, will convey its truth and its grace to you as well today. As we just consider the wisdom of God when he says... Put your trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. It's, of course, the, the middle of the section we heard read. On the steadfast love of the Lord, ending with an admonition not to fear other things, but to fear the Lord. So let's consider trust. Would you? Let's pray. God, um, we fear and we don't trust that we can even hear a sermon like this because we may fear that we are left condemned and yet even that fear is an evidence of our not trusting you and your grace. And so God, we pray you would come now and give us grace to hear and to receive your word. And Lord, may it give glory to Christ, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me just uh, real quickly tell you that this passage could be divided into three parts. Well, actually two parts. The first part, three parts. Am I confusing you? It's really simple. There's an exhortation in three parts, and there's a promise. There you go. And we're going to pretty much follow the text on this. And first of all, just notice then the exhortation. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. It's very clear by the emphasis of the first word trust, that that's the emphasis now of this whole proverb. And it's particularly true that this word trust, if broken down, is to be confident or to be secure as to, as we'll see, lean on something, to, to rely on something. To trust is to be confident, to be secure, to lean on, to rely on, to be supported by. But it's much deeper than that, as we'll see. Because underneath it is this idea of safety. Underneath that is this idea of power and where we empower in life in order to move forward with our life. It's a language here of, of this idea that God and only God is my salvation, according to Isaiah 12. And so, therefore, he says, I will trust and not be afraid. You see how that language, I will trust, as, is distinguished from being fearful. I mean, that's a real key to the understanding of this idea of trust in the proverb, that, that to be fear-driven is the opposite of trusting the Lord. And here, this idea of trust in Isaiah is likened to uh, the manner in which we gain our salvation, which is, of course, going to be the point of the proverb at the very end. 
as we'll see. And so Yahweh, the Lord, he goes on to say, is my strength and my song. Do you hear power now? It's what we celebrate in. It's what we, it's where we look for power. And by power, I mean not simply military power or financial power or relational power, but it's a deeper existential power. It's the power to live, to carry on, to rest, to have peace, to rely on something. So to trust in the Lord is to empower the Lord to be my security, to be my salvation. And notice this all word. Two times in this short passage, the emphasis is on all or everything. Before we get too far, we just need to stop and and think about that for a little bit. I mean, all your heart? Really? I mean, this is what we're being exhorted to do is to trust the Lord with all our heart and in all our ways. There's not, you know, this isn't some kind of thing where we can sort of uh, put a petition here and on Sunday I will trust him, but on Monday, you know, I need to become more pragmatic here, you know, and make a living, God, you know. No, somehow it's all in continuity to trust God in everything and with all of our heart. This may perhaps be the most significant inclusion here in the proverb, wherein wisdom wants us to be all out, all out to God, sold on God, all dependent upon him. If there really is a God, and this is where you, get a, you, you start thinking here, if there really is God, then there cannot be a rival by virtue of the very nature of who God is, there can't be a rival. The scriptures describe God, the very definition of God as being omnipotent, all-powerful. There is no rival power. All-knowing, there is no rival knowing. All-present, all, 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 most, most, most in the descriptions of God. There's, there's never a time where God is described as if yet another. He's always one. That's why the very first of the great commandments that's handed down to us from God is, of course, you probably know it. You shall have, what? No other God before me. It's important to note that Jesus references this very command at the very apex of his temptation. As he's being tempted by Satan, the final word, the final word in his life was selling out to God. He says this, he says to Satan, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Christianity, whatever else you think of Christianity, is not a lifestyle preference. It's not just another uh, best practice in order for me and my family to flourish. It's not alongside of other things we trust. This trust, this trust that leads us to an abundant life of salvation, this trust that 
that is our safety, is our security, is everything that brings about the satisfaction of a life well lived and living is none other than trusting God only. Have I said it enough? It's just so crucial to this text. At the core of the Christian faith, as we hear in, in, in the epistles, it came down, it was like one of the first creeds as the church was being persecuted. The first creed that we know of is in Timothy, and it says, Jesus is Lord, period. That's the creed. That's the creed that empowered a church to be martyred. And by their martyrdom to see the kingdom of God like a grain that went into the ground and died come up hundredfold. It's that confession that Jesus and only Jesus is Lord. The church has never been persecuted for believing in Jesus. Don't let anyone tell you that. Caesar had no problem with Jesus until he is described as Lord. And once he's described as Lord, he now becomes a rival Lord. For Caesar, and the creed of that day was that Caesar is Lord. And Christians said, no. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And that's what killed them. And so here we have this question that now becomes more real, doesn't it? Let's just be honest. Do you trust the Lord? Really? What is it to trust the Lord? How do we do it? That gets us to the second and third part of the exhortation. To trust here is to lean, is the word, Hebrew word that's used. To lean on the Lord. This word lean, again, is it's to get, get support from. It's where we gain our support or what we depend on or what we rely upon. Think about these passages. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree. What is that imagining there? It's, it's the place we take refuge. It's the place we rest and have peace. In this sense, a physical sense of just literally I'm exhausted hauling a bunch of heavy water. And so now this word in, in the Hebrew is used to describe that experience of, of after a hard day work of having a tree, a big oak tree, for instance, under its shade to find refuge. Isaiah 10 uses this word. We will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord. The word depend here two times is the same Hebrew word. In this case, it was as an instance of, of putting confidence in an, another army, another nation. And they said, by, by bad experience in this case, we will never do that again. We will only trust in the Lord. Isaiah 30, therefore thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and, per and perversity and rely on them. The idolatrous world. So there we have it. This very clear statement. And lean not on your own understanding. 
That is to say that, that to, to trust the Lord is to put confidence in something, or him in this case, for everything in our life. Now, I'm moving pretty quickly here because I want to slow down here for a minute. I mean, to trust, well, how do we see that? How is it evidenced? Well, if we're getting this language, trust is evidence when I devote almost a third of my life to formal education. Trust is evidence when I go and vote. Trust is evidence when I ask someone to marry me. Trust is evidence when I buy something and not something else. And on it goes, on and on. Are you getting the message? You know what it means to trust. We don't need to make this academic. Trust is an action, is my point. And that's just not hyperbole. That's not, it's, I mean, at the core of trust is not necessarily an emotion. For instance, to illustrate my point, I'm, the evidence that I trust something is like the evidence when I get into an airplane and allow it to soar me up into the heavens. Think about that for a minute. It's crazy. But trust is getting on the plane even if you're grabbing your seatmate by the arm when it's bumping. Well, maybe now you're trusting in your, in your seatmate, and that's really kind of stupid if you stop and think about it. Isn't that funny that we do that? You know, but, um, I mean, what are they going to do? They're going to go down with you. But you know what I'm saying. Trust is when you act. It's evidenced by, by the actions that we do and, and make. You see, this exhortation has nothing uh, necessarily to do with zeal. And yet we might confuse it for that. Singing a song like we did on trust and, and the song and the chords and the music gets me excited and I'm filled with zeal We've not done anything yet by just singing that song as it comes to trust. We've just sung a song about it. And so here we have it. Do we trust God? Are we leaning or are we leaning on our own understanding? Now that's where I want to slow down. You see, this kind of, of action trust is now contrasted with trusting other things. And here, there's a very difficult passage which I want to help us understand. And it says in this language, in our own knowledge is one English translation. Now, what is he talking about there? It's interesting, what this doesn't mean is it's against knowledge. I mean, that'd be contrary to the whole, all over the place in the case of wisdoms. For instance, just one, Proverbs 4, 5, get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. And so it's not a saying, it's not contrasting uh, God's knowledge with me having knowledge. Quite the contrary. But still, we're at the very surface. This word knowledge, and perhaps some of you have been around and know this, there is a Hebrew word to know, which is a covenantal word. It's not an academic word like, you know, to know facts or to know ideas or to amass yourself with 
with understanding in the sense of understanding how a, 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 you know, a gas engine runs. No, it's, it's a very deep word, and that's what this word is. This word is derived from the word to know, which is to be understood in the sense of, of entering into an intimate and covenant relationship with something. What does it mean then to, to lean not on your own understanding or your own knowledge or knowledge as you have chosen it, you could say? You see here, the judgment is wanting us um, to instead, and notice the contrast, part three of the exhortation, in all your ways, here's that word again, know him. So lean not, you could almost translate this, lean not in your own, within this world, knowing, but rather in all your ways, know God, know him. I hope you're getting it here. It's the word that's used for marriage. For instance, in 1 Kings 1.4, the young woman was very lonely and she cared for the king and served him, but the king did not know her. It's tied to sexual intimacy, and sexual intimacy is very closely. In fact, in the Old Testament, to have sexual intimacy is to become married with very few exceptions. It is how you con it's not just how you consummate a marriage. We often use that in that term. It's how you initiate a marriage to some degree, which is why it's such a violation of the covenant to initiate a marriage with someone that you're not really interested in having a covenant of life with. It's really, a, this is not the sermon time for it, but it's really crucial that we get that understanding even in the marriage situation today. Today, sex initiates an investigative process. It really does, and there's a book about it. Here in the Hebrew, to understand this understanding of, of wisdom, to know God is, is likened unto marrying yourself to God, which is to say what? Till death do us part kind of thing. And so some have used this to turn this word into a kind of emotional intimacy, but that would really lose sight of what's really happening here. To trust in the Lord, to rely on him, means that we enter into a covenant with him for all of our life. It's to marry him. Where everything we say, I say it to married couples all the time, even up here when, in, at the point of their being married and they take the vows and I'll sometimes say something like, you know, from this day forward, you will never make a decision alone. From this day forward, you will never make a decision except that you'll expect wisdom to come from God through the both of you. It's a radical transition from individualism to communalism with your other. Now you're getting this passage. This passage is saying to trust the Lord is to make a radical life change wherein you bound yourself to God and to no other. Where every decision you make in life, where every action that you take is now taken with God. Wisdom is that wisdom that comes from and with and through God.
and for God. It's that kind of knowing that's in view here. It is better, therefore, to trust in the Lord, says the psalmist, 118. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Now you're getting the sense of this thing. Lean not on your own covenant makings, is what it's saying. Lean not on forming these alliances, forming these contracts, whether literal or, 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 or figurative, with other things of your own choosing. And that's why when I read all those questions, think about that. What do we enter covenants with? Is it wrong to have formal education? No, that's not my point. Is it wrong to vote? No, that wasn't my point. Is it wrong to ask someone to marry me? That's not my point. But it would be wrong to do any of those things, and on and on it goes, in a manner that's outside of my covenant relationship with God. It changes everything I do and how I do it even if there are these secondary covenants on earth that we make and live by. And so here we have it. To know God is the wisdom which results in trusting God. And with this, there's a great promise. Verse 5, he, God, will guide your path straight. Now again, this is a proverb, and maybe you've memorized this. This is one of the first passages I've memorized, actually, when I was a Christian. And, you know, that just, it's, just, it's left up in the sky, this kind of abstract, oh, it'll make my path straight, and that sounds like a Hallmark card. You know, somehow, I don't know, it's just not going to get lost in life, you know. Well, there's actually some truth to that. The straight path is not the wandering path. The straight path gets you to a destination, and that is the point, but if you read this passage, now here we go again, he's going to start talking about how to interpret scripture, he keeps doing this to me, but if you just yank this passage out of the Proverbs and don't consider how this phrase is so commonly used in both the Old and New Testament, then you begin to miss the point. This passage is synonymous, just to tell you the punchline at the beginning, with abundant life with the promised land. I mean, we see this, for instance, in Luke chapter 3, as it is written, and he's quoting now the words of Isaiah about the coming of Christ in this context with John the Baptist. The voice of one crying in the wilderness saying, what? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make what? Straight his path. That is a prayer for nothing less than the messianic age the utopian life that is envisioned in the Old Testament in the last days. Acts 13, you son of the devil, you enemy of all the righteous, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? It's an interesting statement. And so this straight path in this incredible a pregnant way of understanding it is in contrast to the path of none other than Satan himself. In each of these paths, passages, you see straight paths 
And there's many more uses of it. I won't go through it. But the straight paths is the ultimate destination of abundant life, salvation, heaven itself, both now as it breaks into our lives and forever as it is perfected in glory. It's the straight path that Christ is referring to when he talks about building a church and even the gates of hell. No crookedness will enter. No destruction will enter. It's even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's this passage in Matthew 28. Remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's this passage in Romans 8. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. On and on it could go. These passages, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work and you will perfect it. It's a straight path. You won't get lost. You won't get cremated. Well, maybe you will, but it's all right in that sense. It's this incredibly pregnant language. Trust in the Lord. Rely on him in everything you do. And you will not go the crooked way of Satan. You will not be destroyed. You will wander, not wander off into those paths that bring destruction into your life. You will go straight abundance well I think the take home is kind of simple and yet we need to unpack it just a little bit more today it is revealed that wisdom it's wise to trust God that's the simplicity of it and so some questions do you trust God with all your heart and in all your ways well let's just all right now confess yet again you ready let's get the kneelers who here trusts the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Please put up your hand. Come on, come on. I can't even force you to do it. Of course you can't. Of course not. And so the first use of this passage, I want to apply to the use of what we call in the Christian church justification. There is a kind of trust in the Lord unto justification. That is how we become righteous or justified before God so that we don't have to any longer worry about justifying ourselves. And here's the irony. To trust God unto justification means that I don't trust my own trusting God to do it. Now let's just underline that because the rest of this sermon would become a horrible, oppressive exercise if I don't start there. Let me say it again. If you're not a believer, you didn't come to church, and your pastor did not say to you, if you want to become a Christian, you got to trust your trust in God. You got to believe in yourself and yourself as you put your trust in God, your ability to trust God, how well you trust God when you leave this room. That's not what you're going to do in order to be restored to this marital intimacy with God, in order to enter into covenant with Him. Rather, what you're going to do is you're going to trust the God who substituted for you in trusting God. Now, that is a weird statement. But, of course, that's the nature of the Trinitarian salvation. God the Father sending his Son to become us 
that he might fulfill the law of wisdom where we failed to trust God, to trust him for us. Again, I'll read the quote, the ultimate moment that leads up to the day of atonement, the day which, in which we are going to be made right with God, is a day where he emphatically says and, 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 and flees the temptation to trust in his own power or all the powers of the wealth and the militaries and the governments that Satan was offering him. And he says, I will not trust in those things. Be gone, Satan, for I will trust in the Lord. Not my will done, but my Father's in heaven. And so to become a Christian is to stop trusting yourself or stop trusting your ability to trust God. Let Christ trust God for you. And trust Christ trusting God. And you will be saved. It's really that emphatic. We're saved by grace through faith. Not of ourselves. Unless anyone could boast in ourselves and our faith. It's the free gift of God. There it is. And so do you trust God with all your heart and in all your ways? Very sadly, no. Now, this is a profound confession. The world right now is looking for a nemesis. It's just nemesis looking every day on the news. Nemesis looking every day in our lives, isn't it? Someone to blame for all the in the world. And we've got now a profound answer. The nemesis is within ourselves and each one of us. The word that needs to be celebrated, not because of what the word is, but because it makes sense, is the word sin. It's that word of breaking covenant with God. And when we break covenant with God, we break covenant with life in the straight path. Do you see? This is, this is the gospel in wisdom genre. To, to not trust in the Lord is to not therefore receive the promise of God leading our paths straight. And that's why all the mess in the world. It all comes down to it. There is not a policy. There is not an educational institution. There's not enough money to solve that problem. It's amazing how much zeal and passion we will put ourselves to, to that which won't solve the problem. Don't get me wrong. Education's good. Money's good if you use it for the Lord. So is politics. I hope you're all invested in some manner in the common grace of God in, with, and through our city. But it would be a grave mistake to ever even get close to the idea that someday, someday, we will educate ourselves, we will, we will finance ourselves, or we will politicize ourselves to the straight and narrow path. And therefore, back to the point, trust Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And the first is that justifying trust where I no longer try to justify myself. I'm no longer now fearful of God's condemnation. I'm no longer fearful of Satan. I'm no longer fearful of, of fickle chance. 
I am fearful only of God and good news I put my fear in the right place because to fear God is therefore to fear nothing else ever again to the degree that I trust him, says Chesterton. That's incredible. To fear God is to vanquish all other fears. To trust God is to disrely on all other reliances in a fundamental way. And that means, listen, is that all other reliances, all other fears are subordinate fears that now need to fit into this great fear of God, which is a way of our passage, of course, ended. Fear not human things, but fear the Lord. That's to trust the Lord is all that is. And so that's the first point, this justifying trust let me read a great quote um, by D. Lloyd-Jones about this kind of trust. I'll read it slowly. You can close your eyes, whatever you want to do, but just kind of let it absorb before we move on. He says it this way. We can put it this way. The person who has trust is the person who is no longer looking at himself or herself. No longer looking to himself, he no longer looks at anything he once was. Wow. Really? I don't have to consider who I was anymore as my path to being right with God? He goes on. He does not look at what he is now. Really? I'm sorry. I'm going to stop. There's always been enough grace, it seems to me, in the evangelical, we call it the evangelical church. I don't like that word. It seems it's misunderstood. Let's call it even the grace-centered church the gospel-centered church. We always seem to have a lot of grace for those people out there to come and profess faith in Christ, don't we? And we tell them, hey, whatever you've done, you know, grace is sufficient. I love that that Lloyd-Jones put this in here. He does not look at what he does now either. Christian, I know that feeling of shame that you feel to be asking forgiveness every week for the same sin. I do it almost every week. The struggle, that abiding sin, that habitual sin, that sin that just gets me at my core, that thorn-in-my-flesh sin. And I think to myself, how could I be a Christian? I mean, anybody can go through and get credentials in a seminary and whatever you got to do to, you know, be a pastor. But how do I know I'm a Christian, God, when I keep confessing this kind of stuff? This just encourages me. To trust Lord in this justifying way is not, therefore, to look at what I am now either. He goes on. He does not even look at what he hopes to be as the result of his own efforts. He looks entirely to the Lord, Jesus Christ, and his finished work, and he rests on that alone. He leans on Jesus. He has ceased to say, ah, yes, I have committed terrible sins, but I have done this, but I have done that, and well, I'm not as bad as the other guy. He stopped saying that kind of stuff, this justifying trust person. He stopped saying that if he goes on saying that he has not got faith, he goes on Faith speaks in an entirely different manner and makes a person say, yes, I have sinned grievously. 
I have lived a life of sin. Yet I know that I am a child of God because I am not resting on any righteousness of my own, but my righteousness is in Jesus Christ, and God has put his, that to my account. If you're not a believer, or even if you are, let's don't lose sight of this justifying trust. But to transition, we know that salvation, and I think a lot of gospel-believing people forget this, salvation is not just being set free from the penalty of my sins. It's also to be set free from my sins. Because sins is anti-life, anti-flourishing, anti-abundance. Even as we are saved by grace through trusting in Christ alone, justifying trust, our salvation is more than to be justified, but it is also to be restored in life itself. Do you want to trust God with all your heart and in all your ways? Well, you're saying, yes, I do, but that seems a little bit much, don't you think? I mean, isn't it something of an unfair exhortation? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. I mean, pastor, trust is not the kind of thing I can just turn a switch on. I mean, you, you know, what do we say even in the common world? You know, trust is something you got to earn. I mean, how can I trust in something until I just do? <laughs> I mean, how do you do that? I have people ask me this all the time, either about faith or trust. It's like, I mean, how do you have faith? How do you do that? How do you just, okay, faith, okay, got it. It just doesn't work that way, does it? So is this an unfair kind of, of request of God? Well, yes, in a human sense, but no. And here's what I want to do is use the example of, of David to, in closing. I would distinguish trust in these two ways. And this is getting right to the core of kind of a, a pedagogy of what trust is. I would distinguish initiating trust from persevering trust. Now, initiating trust is, is a trust that does not yet have experience or history. It is something of a leap of trust, to be sure, emotionally especially. Not the sort of leap that is mere emotion, something you can just psych yourself up to do with some good music. In fact, quite the contrary, that might be the source of all kinds of false leaps. It's not an event kind of a leap. It's not an experiential kind of a leap like a pregame exercise before I run out onto the field kind of a leap. Rather, the biblical leap is not a leap of sight or emotion. That's the point. I don't necessarily feel it when it's a leap of faith or trust. Rather, this initiating trust is a conviction-initiated trust. And once we leap and trust, then history begins with God. And as history begins with God, I begin to experience the abundance of relying on God. Let me break it out with this story of David. We know many of us, even if we haven't grown up in a church like I did, knew about David and Goliath. And, and what led up to that? How was it that this little run of a kid was able to do what the great armies were not able to do? Well, he trusted God. But notice how it goes into due phases. In 2 Samuel 17, he says this. This is how he did it. What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy 
the armies, and here's the key, of a living God. Oh, boy, was that a statement. I mean, what was assumed here in the reliance on a living God? God, he's thinking, if truly God is a sovereign God, a God who is at once most powerful, most wise, most omnipresent, most present. He's living. He's real. I mean, we were talking in the yard the other day. We had a great party Friday night, the staff, and some of us were just talking around the pool afterwards, and we're sitting there talking and saying, you know, it really all starts with, do you believe in God? Really, do you believe in God? I say it in our theology class, I'd rather you lose that kind of belief in God that hasn't really believed in God in order to really find it. See, that's what he's doing here. It's the same thing in 1 Timothy 4. To this end, we toil and struggle because we have our hope set on the living God who's the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This changes everything because that means we go from a word of circumstances to the word providence about our lives. When we make a decision, we know it's a decision that was put into our plate purposefully. When we're reacting to a circumstance, we know that we're reacting to something that is put into our lives purposefully. He's living. He wasn't dead when you got that car wreck. He wasn't dead when you, you know, and you could go right through. He knows what's making you anxious. He put it there. Think about how that changes things. He put it there. He's in control of it. He decreed it. And therefore, here is little runt David saying, I can't believe you guys. Don't you believe in God? Because if you do, don't you understand this Goliath was put here by God? And this God has power that Goliath can't even imagine? That's the way he's arguing in the belief in the living God. I wish I had time to, to just reflect on that idea of God's sovereignty and how that just changes everything about the way we live our lives. But this initiating trust is a conviction that concludes, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire before you. That's the disposition of a conviction that says, I will therefore line up the promises of God, the wisdom of God, the instructions of God with the reality that this circumstances is decreed by God. And now I'm just simply looking for the most faithful response that I can make to that circumstance, knowing what I know from the wisdom of God. That's what I do. Just looking for a faithful response. And even then, if the response needs to be made, knowing that God told me to make it now, not tomorrow. And that emboldens us to make decisions decisively and not look back. That's the initiating trust. An initiating trust will not be feeling or emotional based. In fact, quite the contrary, you may be shivering as you walk onto that plane but you're taking a leap of conviction, not psych out. You've known and you've heard and you've studied enough about planes and seen other people get on planes to know that they get on the other side most of the time to say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that leap. Emotionally, it's a leap. Now, that purses to persevering trust. First Samuel, back in the day before he made that living trust, he has this statement. 
Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and the uncircumcised Philistines shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. Now you see what living God looks like. He's now going back to this life of believing and leaping with the conviction of a living God. And as you leap, and as God is shown to be reliant, you more and more start to feel it. This persevering leap. I mean, I say this to marriage couples. My guess is, and this is the bad news, I guess. I guess or it's both good and bad, depending on which, one you're, which characteristics you're thinking of. But whatever characterizes your wife or your husband before you get married, I, honestly, it's going to be there, maybe even more. You know, so if this is an issue, don't expect it to go away, necessarily. I mean, it might, I mean don't get me wrong. I believe in the power of the gospel. But here's what I'm going to. So I, I'd love to explain all that, but I just don't have the time. But here's the point, and I've seen it in my own marriage, and I know others who have counsel as well. The difference is, is as you move through life together and you wake up in the same bed together every morning for 36 years, those things don't mean the same thing anymore when they happen. Those little tiffs, those little arguments, those little disagreements, those little things that get under your skin, they don't set you into a, a, a sequence of fear and reaction like it used to because you know what? That's where the gospel does come in. This woman has been reliable for 36 years to sleep in a bed with me. Can you believe that? Don't answer. <laughs> but every year it gets easier not to make a big deal about our differences because they don't matter as much. A persevering Christian is someone who goes through life in that marriage with God, and it becomes more and more intimate. It's not that you might not be struggling with things the way you were, but they struggle doesn't mean as much because God woke up with you in your same bed the next morning, filled with grace, new every morning he woke up with you. And when he woke up with you with that new every morning grace, Every day's new. Every day's a new start. And all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, over time, persevering grace, which is persevering trust. And so I hope this makes sense of the Christian life. This is an amazing and powerful thing. I hope and pray that you will, therefore, pray that God would give you the grace of trust. It will begin with conviction. It must Respond with action to be trust. Perhaps you're here and you've just been waiting and, okay, here it is. Just take the card out. Put your email or your text and say, I just want to talk. That's a step. And I can guarantee you here, there will be no condemnation. And there's nothing you want to talk about that's going to cause a gaffe in me or any of us. Because we've been there more than you know. Start with prayer. Take a leap of conviction. Enter into the life of the church in participation and grow in your trust in the Lord. Amen.